Good morning, everybody. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, do the visualization of the Buddha field in front of us and ourselves surrounded by all the sentient beings. And one way to integrate the teachings on fortitude that were that Shanti Deva is giving us is as we face the Buddha and want to take refuge, think that uh, not only are all sentient beings surrounding us, but the people who harm us, the people who we don't like, who we don't trust, who we fear, they are right in front of us. So to look at the Buddha, we have to see those people the enemies, the uh, harmers, we have to see them before we can see the Buddha who's sitting in back of them. Okay? So it's getting, it's emphasizing to us that there's no way that we can escape the people that we don't like and that harm us. And that in one way or another, we have to make peace with them. Otherwise, uh, the past is going to control us and our mind will be forever in the grips of fear, anxiety, revenge, and so forth. So when you're doing the visualization, even before you take refuge, it's a good time to contemplate fortitude and to employ uh, one or more of the methods that Shantideva is teaching us to be able to release that anger. When the anger is gone, the fear is also gone. So make your mind big to encompass all living beings. And remember that all living beings is not a amorphous blob. It's a bunch of individuals. And that you have relationships with each individual. And that who they are in each lifetime who you are in each lifetime 
and what the relationship between you is in each lifetime differs drastically from one life to the next. And so there's no use trying to pinpoint that person as being a certain type of person or doing a certain type of behavior as if they had some concrete personality in all these lives, because they don't. So for the, all these sentient beings who are in constant change, generate a sense of compassion, wishing them to be free of dukkha, of all the dukkha, of all of samsara. So even though you can't pinpoint who all these sentient beings are, they still exist, and it's suitable to have compassion for them. And then let this be our motivation for sharing the Dharma today. So I made the comment at the beginning about being free uh, from anger lets us also be free from fear. And I'm sure some people said, no, it's the other way around. First I have to be free of fear, then I can stop hating them. Yeah, because as long as they make me afraid, then it's possible for them to hurt me, then my fear is justified. And when I'm fearful, what will protect me is anger, because that will make me stand up for myself against this harm. My anger will give me power. Therefore, I will hate this person and bear a grudge against them for as long as I live because that will protect me from every harmful thing they can do for me. Okay, so that's the logic of fear and anger. What's wrong with that logic? It sounds good. Society 
tells us to think like that. Our parents tell us to think like that. We think like that. But what's wrong with that way of thinking? Yeah, that's a nice general statement. We want specific. You are not going to solve your problem by nice general statements. Oh, I have a radical misconception. Well, that's nice. Is that going to get rid of it? No, because you're not, you have no idea what your radical misconception is. Well, first of all, you've got, you're totally hooked to the fact that you have to depend on somebody else's behavior, somebody else's mind, somebody else's karma for you to have any peace in your mind. So as long as they're doing whatever you think is making you afraid, you're waiting for them to change before you can have peace. And that is a no-win situation and a radical misconception. (laughs) (laughs) She took the words right out of your... Your where did they did they did you have those words? Oh, you, you just gave an amorphous answer instead. Oh. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Yeah, and when as long as we're angry. There's no way we can change who we think that other person is or how we see their behavior because the anger completely blocks us from seeing the person in any other way besides that image that we have in them that's casting concrete that we think that concrete statue in our mind of who that person is, is that actual living person. Yeah, But a concrete statue that we have made in our mind as who that person is, is not that person. Yeah. And we have to loosen Uh, that image we have. One way that I find very helpful to loosen that image is to recall that that person hasn't always been who they are now. Okay? That in a previous life, they were different, and they looked different, and we had a very different relationship. Okay? So there may be somebody who you really can't stand now. Okay, whenever you think of that person, oh, they have absolutely no good qualities. They're ruining my life. They're ruining the country. They're ruining the universe. (sighs) I wish they got hit by a truck. Oh, I'm not supposed to think like that, but maybe it'll happen even if I don't think it. I hope, I hope. Get rid of this person because they are so awful. Okay. So this is where I think our kitties are very, very helpful. Yeah. Because when one of the kitties sits in your lap and purrs, yeah, 
your heart completely melts. It's like, oh, this kitty loves me and I love this kitty. Or maybe if you're dog people, it's your dog or it's, it's your puppy. Or maybe if you have kids, it's your baby, not teenager, but baby. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you just love this little being to death. Yeah. And maybe they were, you know, who the person that you can't stand now is, was. Or maybe they will be that person in the future who will sit on your lap and purr, who will be your your doggy who follows you everywhere and wags their tail whenever they see you. Yeah? So who is that person? Are they that person that you know today? Or are they that adorable little critter that, that you love so much and that loves you? Yeah, who, who are they? Yeah, when you have a big perspective like this, really, who are they? Yeah, do you think out of that adorable little pet, you know, is lurking that rapist, that murderer, that thief, that abuser? Do you think there's somewhere inside that your pet and they're going to pop out in the middle of the night and say, you didn't realize I was really this horrible person. Now do you hate me? Yeah. Or when you think of the person that you can't stand, yeah, is it possible that out of them, when they're sitting glaring at you with hatred, that all of a sudden pops out this adorable puppy, you know, and your kitty who purrs in your lap. Yeah. Or the baby who just clings to you that you love. Yeah. So who is that person? Do they have a concrete personality? Do they always act in the same way every lifetime? Do we always have the same relationship with them every lifetime? Yeah. And so here we, it's a good example because we can see how we create that concrete image and cling to it in our mind and make ourselves terribly miserable. Okay? Because as long as we are angry at that person, we're going to fear them. I think the anger is, we have to loosen the anger before we can get the, at the fear. Some people may say, no, we got to get at the fear before we can loosen the anger. But how are you going to loosen the fear if you hate them? If you're still holding the anger, you can't see them in any other way except as a harmer. Yeah? So we have to somehow change our image of who this person is. And see, you know, that they are not a truly existent, concrete individual. 
but they're changing all the time, and so are we. And there's one story, uh, it must be in the scripture somewhere, but I remember so well um, one of my teachers telling it that always, that to me is like so powerful. So it's about two arhats who were uh, going on Pindapot on alms round, and they were at one house and looked inside, uh, you know, as the the family was getting some food to to give to them. And one arhat said to the other, "Yeah, wow, what a karmic story this is," or some something to that effect, you know, like. Wow, this does, this is not what it appears to be. And then went on to explain to his friend, well, the mother of the family is sitting, you know, on her rocking chair, feeding fish bones to the, or uh, fish, you wouldn't feed fish bones to a dog, feeding, uh, you know, uh, yeah, cow bones to the dog. Yeah. And the father of the family is, uh, is sitting across from her. They look very peaceful together and he's holding their baby on the lap. Yeah. And <laughs> what the Arhat is seeing is that the baby that the husband is holding. Yeah. Is the uh, rebirth of his wife's lover. Yeah, so the wife's lover, who he hated before, is now reborn as the baby that he loves so much. Yeah, and the dog is the wife's uh, father or mother, one of the parents, let's say, let's say mother, the dog is the mother, and the cow bones that are being fed to her mother, the rebirth of her mother, are the bones uh, uh, from her father who was reborn as a cow. Yeah. So her parents, who she loves so much, she is now feeding the body of one to the other. And yet it looks like this perfect family, ideal family. But how strange it is, isn't it? That who used to be the one you loved is now eating you. And they used to be the one that you were jealous of is now the one you love. And so that kind of story just really prompts me to to say, okay, we've got to see people in a much bigger way than we do. And to watch how our mind really thinks we know who somebody is. And it's based on their actions for a limited period of time. But based on maybe that one incident we had with them, we think we know everything about them. And that that's who they have been and always will be. And therefore, my hatred, 
my fear are totally justified. And there's no other way to see that person. Okay, so that's the big misconception story that uh, we feed ourselves. And then, you know, as when we think like that, are there, put it this way, are there certain things in the past that influence you so much today that you are not free of them? It's as if the past is still in some way looking over your shoulder and determining how you look at things, how you see things. Yeah. And when how we look at things and see things is, is a way of, of hatred, of anger, of fear, of suspicion. Yeah. We may think we have gotten over what happened in the past, but actually it is binding us today. Yeah. It is not happening now, but it is controlling our life today because we're seeing things in that distorted way based on experiences, negative experiences we had in the past. Okay? And then, you know, we aren't free. Now, some people said, well, I am free. I can go and do what I want. But when doing what you want is controlled by what you experienced in the past and you're imputing that on the present and on the future, then you're not free. Do you get what I mean by taking the past and you're imputing it now and and this is going to happen in the future so i better beware yeah better not trust anybody or whatever our thing is yeah and so when we see that what is binding us is just our own mind yeah not the other person not what they did Not the past situation, but our afflictive mind is what is binding us. So we have to find another way to see that person or another way to see that situation that happened between us. So what I talked about at the beginning of seeing that person you know, as a pet, as a baby, as somebody that you love, you know, in this life. And, you know, they could have been that to you in a previous life, and they may be that to you in a future life. Yeah. So that's changing how you see the person. Yeah. Shanti Deva here is going to also help us look at the person in another way and look at the situation we had with them in another way, okay? Because the situation that we remember was one of harm 
and therefore the person is an enemy. And Shantideva is now going to tell us why that situation was actually beneficial and how the person is actually as important to us in attaining Buddhahood as the Buddha is. Okay? So we have to approach this with a mind that is open and flexible and willing to change how we think and how we see things. Yeah, if we are not willing to change how we think, yeah, or if we tell ourselves, I cannot change how I think, it is too much a part of me, then these teachings are not going to have much effect and we're going to be miserable. Okay? So it's not always so easy to think to what Shantideva is asking us to think. Yeah. Because it's a complete reversal from what we've thought up until now and the way society and our family and everybody else tells us we ought to see. Yeah. But who are the wise ones? Is it Shantideva or is it society and our family? Who are the ones who are enlightened? Is it Buddha and Shantideva or is it society and our family? Okay, so who who are we going to follow? Yeah. And yes, it takes some energy to try and move the mind in this way. But if we practice it, you know, and play with it instead of like, okay, I've got to see this enemy as lovable. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love him. Oh, my stomach hurts. No, that's not going to work. We have to really change, you know, inside and play with it over a period of time. So we need to approach this with a sense of lightness. Yeah, not a sense of, you know, know, yeah, like, oh, there's these rusty wheels inside my brain. I can't move them, and I actually don't want to. Uh, No, you know, it's just play with it. Okay, so let's go back to where we were in the text. Let's start with 104 a little bit to make the context again. So if without it something does not occur, and if with it it does come to be, then since this enemy would be the cause of fortitude, because without an an enemy, your fortitude cannot come to be, then how can I say that the enemy prevents me from cultivating fortitude? Because that's the way our mind thinks. Oh, this person, they're so awful. There's no way I can forgive them. Yeah, we think fortitude 
forgiveness are impossible. But Shanditeva is saying, you know, fortitude, forgiveness are, are qualities we need to cultivate. And we can only cultivate them if there's somebody who has harmed us. Okay. Now, we have to properly understand what forgiveness means and what fortitude means. If, because if we don't, then it creates an obstacle, okay? So forgiveness does not mean what the other person did was okay. Okay, repeat, it does not mean what the other person did was okay. Okay, what it means, what forgiveness means is I'm going to stop being angry at about it. I can still look at the action they did and say that action was horrific. It was horrible. But I cannot say that that person is irredeemable. Okay. I cannot say that, uh, yeah, I am doomed to, or I'm going to do myself to hate them forever. Okay. It just means when we forgive somebody that I am tired of being angry because this anger is ruining my life and it's making me create negative karma that's going to cause me to have more situations like this in the future. And I'm tired of, of this. I can say what they did was wrong. Yeah. But I'm tired of hating them. So many years ago, I was teaching in, in Israel. I went a few times to Israel to teach. And during one of the retreats, um, we were talking about anger and forgiveness. And I, uh, you have, you have to understand the Israeli mind. Uh, for the Israeli mind, the Holocaust has never ended. Okay, the Holocaust is alive and well. When I went to Poland, I found the same thing. World War II is alive and well in Poland. Yeah? So these are, you know, when this is so much in your mind, then the idea, even somebody talks about forgiving the people who killed you, is like intolerable. There's no way you can even think about it. Those people are awful. A to Z, one to infinity. There is no other way to see them. Okay? And that is what caused, if you want to understand Israeli politics, this is one of the chief factors that you have to remember in it. Yeah? Is that... Uh, people said to them, the Nazis marched the Jews off to the concentration camp, and the Jews never protested. They never st stood up for themselves. They just let themselves become victims. 
That isn't completely true. There were uprisings and uprisings in different ghettos. But you see pictures, trainfuls of, of people getting on the trains with their suitcases, not knowing where they're going. And, you know, so many people say, oh, they were just, they didn't stick up for themselves. So Israelis hear that. Well, this lifetime, no more. Forget it. Nobody is trampling on us ever again, period. Okay. And that's why that fuels, you know, how they are treating the, the Palestinians. Not that that's right. It's just how they, how they think, you know. Now, of course, Palestinians are probably you know, if they get power sometime, they may turn around and do the same thing to somebody else. Okay? So you can, you see here the basic problem is, is our mind in all these situations, is sentient beings' minds. So, anyway, so at this, this retreat, we were talking about forgiveness and releasing anger and everything. And I led a meditation where we uh, imagined that we were in Auschwitz and going from one place to the next in Auschwitz, generating compassion, forgiveness, and then compassion for the guards, for the, uh, the people in the offices who ran it, for... Uh, what was his name? Men, Mendel, Mendeley, the guy who did, who experimented on human beings. Men, Mendel. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So, you know, generating forgiveness for him, compassion for him, because how much confusion does somebody have in their mind that they act like that? Yeah. And it was an incredible meditation doing this, you know, sitting in a room with a bunch of Jews, you know, going through every place in Auschwitz and, and mentally generating forgiveness. And it was incredibly powerful. Yeah. And this is the kind of thing we need to do in, in our meditation. Yeah. If we're angry at a group of people, if we're angry at an individual, yeah, it doesn't matter to, to really go through and, and practice forgiveness. Meaning, I'm not going to be angry anymore. But I will say that what they did was wrong. And I will also confess doing that kind of action myself in my previous lives. Because who knows what in the world I've been in my previous life. And I could have acted like that towards somebody then. So to make sure that never again in the future I become the kind of person who harms people like I am now, are you getting what I'm saying? I don't want to repeat the behavior of those people that I am now forgiving myself because who knows, I could have done the same thing in the past. I'm going to confess it with all four opponent powers and make a very strong determination not to act that way 
myself. And if you do the purification in that way, that really cuts our arrogance and it cuts the self-pity. Yeah. And we really have to see, you know, yeah, there's no way I can hold myself as superior to this other person because who knows what I've done. Okay, so this is the kind of meditation when you're reciting your mantras, you know, it's not just tired Oh, I forgot, I don't wear a watch anymore. You know, that is, no, that's, that's not what we're doing in our meditation, okay? Yeah. When we did this meditation in Israel, as we went through all switch, Chenrezi came with us. Yeah. And we went into every place with Chenrezi and thought about how Chenrezi would look at this situation. Very powerful. Okay. Someone who was at that retreat with you in Israel, Yale, is online and said it was extremely powerful. Yeah. 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 That's nice. Yale, thank you for being here. Yeah. So, yeah, it was very powerful. And uh, it's something we need to do many, many times, often. Okay, so then 105. A beggar is not an obstacle to generosity when I am giving something away. And I cannot say that those who give ordination are an obstacle to becoming ordained. Okay, so what we're looking at here is, you know, you want to do something virtuous, who else needs to be in the picture for you to do something virtuous? Yeah, if you want to be generous and cultivate generosity, you need somebody to be generous with. Yeah. So when a beggar comes, that person is not a nuisance. They are benefiting you, allowing you to create the virtue of generosity. Yeah. And every time I teach this, I think of one time, I was visiting uh, one of my teachers, Kensar Jampa Tekchok, in South India. And he, uh, <laughs> this is incredible. He, he liked to cook dinner for us when we were visiting. We should have been cooking dinner for him, but he insisted on cooking for us. And, uh, and then he would serve the food and make us sit in chairs, and he sat on the floor. I mean, this this is a Geshe Larampa who is an inc- amazing, incredible teacher. Okay, so this is the way he acted towards us, you know, Ingies who thought we were so. <laughs> yeah. And so one time the, we're eating dinner there in his room, and uh, a beggar comes. And uh, Kenza Rinpoche just got up, went in the other room, got 
one of these nice uh, blankets, you know, I think it might have been one of the fleece blankets that are so soft, went outside, gave it to the beggar who was standing on the porch, and the beggar smiled and left, and Kenzer Rinpoche came back in and sat on the floor. Okay? So here is somebody of his caliber, yeah, kind of, you know, He's respecting the beggar. He's being generous to the beggar. He's not seeing the beggar as a nuisance. Yeah. And he's not being arrogant of, you know, well, you know, I'm a Geshe Larampa. Who are you coming to, you know, beg at my door? Um, you know, but completely, yeah. And just went and gave a very nice blanket. Yeah. And blankets are prized. They're, they're not, you know, they're, they're, they're a very nice offering, yeah. Okay. There are indeed many beggars in this world, but scarce are those who inflict harm. For if I have not injured others, few beings will cause me harm. So in case our mind says, well, I'll practice uh, patience regarding the beggars, yeah, uh, Shandideva is saying, well, beggars don't usually harm us. <laughs> so it's a little bit difficult to practice patience with them. Anyway, if they did, it's completely because I've injured others in the past. I've harmed others in the past. Okay, so it's the boomerang effect. Do they really have boomerangs in Australia? <laughs> they do, huh? Okay, so, then 107, therefore, just like treasure appearing in my house without any effort on my part to obtain it, I should be happy to have enemies, for they assist me in my conduct of awakening. This is the verse where you put down the book and you say, what is he talking about? I should be happy to have enemies. Yeah, everything he said before, yeah, that was okay. That's what softies say to get you to, to be all kind of sugary, sweet, and snuggly. But there's no way I am going to capitulate and give up my anger and be happy I have enemies because these people are rotten and dis despicable and for the benefit of the world, I should destroy them. And we go right back to our old way of thinking. Yeah? Which is, by the way, exactly the same way as the, of thinking as the person that we can't stand who is our enemy. Yeah, because what's the enemy thinking about us? Oh, I can't stand them. They're a horrible person. For the benefit of the world, I'm going to get rid of them. And that's what we're thinking about the enemy. So we become exactly like the person we can't stand. And we're very proud of it because we think that our anger protects us. 
Okay. Then somebody's going to say, well, but if I'm not angry, then I am a softy, you know? And they're just going to walk all over me. What's that song? <clears throat> These boots are made for walking and I'm going to walk all over you. Okay. I think that was a love song that went, a, a, a love that went bad song, meaning that it was mostly attachment. And that's why it turned into anger very easily. But anyway, the point is, you know, if I am not angry, they're going to walk all over me. So I'm going to walk all over them first. Okay. That's why we have defense departments. We don't have offensive departments, even though our defense apartments are offensive in more ways than one. Okay. We always call it defense, isn't it? Yeah. We're spending how many trillions of dollars in defense? Yeah. Well, people in this country, you know, some of them don't have enough food. But better we have big airplanes. Okay. Anyway, you know, so we start thinking, you know, this is what I need to do to stay safe. And and we, you know, we forget diplomacy. Okay. And, and in our personal lives too, and in, in group situations, yeah. It's just, I can't eat, I'm so angry, I can't even talk to that person. Well, if you can't talk to them, how are you ever gonna understand them and forgive them? Yeah. Yeah. So we need to have, we can, the point is in all this is, we can have our own sense of dignity. We can be assertive. But none of that necessitates anger. So when dealing with people who are trying to harm us, sometimes we need to be quite assertive. Okay. But we can do it without being angry. Yeah. Our problem is we think the only thing that will give me the energy to be assertive is anger. If I have compassion, compassion gives me the energy of just being a blob. I'm so compassionate. Yeah, whatever you want. I love you. Yeah, I'm compassionate. I will just always forgive you. Do what you want. I don't care. Yeah. And we think that is compassion. Yeah, that's not compassion. That's stupidity. <laughs> okay. So we can certainly stand up and say, this behavior is, you know, inappropriate. It is not going to fly. And we can say it with that tone of voice, but we can say it without hating the other person. Okay. Which is very hard for people to understand. Many years ago, I was giving a talk uh, at, it was University of Michigan. Yeah. Venerable Tarpa, are you listening? 
Yes, okay. So they had some kind of mediation department. I think she went to that university. Or she's from Michigan. Um, so they had a, 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 a department about communications and mediation. And I gave a talk like this to them. And uh, those people were not happy at me at all. <laughs> at all. They, they said, anger is good. Too much anger is bad. But when somebody harms you, anger is good because anger lets you know that there's a problem and that you have to deal with the problem. As if you can't know that there's a problem by, by being wise. <laughs> yeah, that only by being angry can you know there's a problem. So therefore, anger is good. Oh, they were really mad at me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. Now, it does take, as we all have learned through NVC and trying to apply NVC, it is difficult to apply NVC when one of your little red buttons has been pushed, you know, like I talked about, your little red button that is so sensitive to just the air in front of it moving when somebody <laughs> walks by. Yeah. That, uh, uh, but uh, really, you know, when you think about it, yeah, to be able to look and clearly, with a wisdom side mind, say that behavior is inappropriate. That behavior is harm, harmful. But that that person who did that behavior behavior is not evil. Okay, they are not evil. When Lama Yeshe would give a, a talk like this. Somebody, you know, inevitably would raise their hand and say, but Lama, what about Hitler, Stalin, and Mao Zedong? And Lama would sit there and he would look at you and he would say, they meant wells, dear. What are you saying, Lama? They meant wells, dear. Yeah. So they meant well, but they did that. Yeah. But if we look at our own mistakes, how many times did we, in our own confused way, mean well and then did really nasty things to other people? Kind of deliberately, but kind of meaning well. Yeah. So who are we to, to be arrogant and think that, you know, this kind of behavior is not something I would ever do? When I was a kid, this is a good example. When I was a kid, in my 
my parents were trying to grow some plants in the planter. And we had snails. And the snails would eat the plants. So I thought, I'm going to help my parents get rid of the snails. So I would pick up, I was little, you know, so I would pick out all the snails, yeah, put them on, uh, like in the gutter, you know, and then step on them and crunch them. And I got rid of the, these horrible snails that were ruining my parents' garden. Yeah? That was murder. I mean, not, not in the government sense, but I was killing all these living beings. And I meant well for my parents, but so ignorant. Yeah. So ignorant. So, you know, I was, I was killing snails. You can say, well, that was just a little kid killing snails. You know, Hitler and Mao Zedong and Stalin were killing human beings. But, you know, everybody wants to be happy and not suffer. It doesn't matter if you're a human being or you're a snail. I don't think the snails rejoiced when I crushed them. Yeah. They'd probably screamed in pain, except I couldn't hear them. Okay. Okay. So verse 107, just like a treasure appearing in my house without any effort on my part to obtain it. So I want to practice fortitude. Yeah. So here's an enemy who appears in my house without me having to do anything And now I have the opportunity to create this incredible virtue of fortitude, which you cannot create if you don't have somebody who harms you. So this person is like a treasure to me. Okay, That's what Zobarumche was trying to get across to me on the discussion I told you about last time with why Sam is kinder to me than the Buddha. Yeah, you need Sam. And I'm saying, yeah, I need Sam like a hole in the head. You need Sam. If you're going to practice fortitude, you need him. You know, so look at how much we have to really change our mind to grok this. Yeah, to really understand this. But if we can practice changing our mind in this way, it's very, very powerful. Yeah. So without any effort on my part, to obtain this treasure, Sam was there. And Sam had all these friends that supported him. That So the whole team of them, you know, were like many treasures. Okay. So I should be happy to have enemies, for they assist me in my conduct of awakening. Yeah. Because Rinpoche said, if you want to become a Buddha, which I said, yes, I want to, he said, 
you need to cultivate fortitude. There's no way to become a Buddha without cultivating fortitude. And for fortitude, you need somebody who harms you. So Sam is kinder to you than the Buddha. You cannot practice fortitude with the Buddha. Yeah, you need Sam. My my mind was going nuts. Okay, but your teacher tells you something, so you think maybe I better think about this a little bit more deeper. More deeper, yes, grammar. I yeah, <laughs> I better think about this more. Yeah, and you know because there's a reason for for saying this. Okay. So one and eight, one oh eight. Because I am able to practice fortitude with them, these enemies, they are worthy of being given the very first fruits of my fortitude. For in this way, they are the cause of it. So if I become a Buddha, or when I become a Buddha, because of practicing fortitude and generating compassion for those people, and compassion especially is the cause of bodhicitta, and bodhicitta is the principal cause you need to become a Buddha, okay, then these people should be given the first fruits of my awakening because they're the cause of it. Now you look at the Buddha's awakening. Who were the first people he taught? Yeah, his five friends who he did ascetic practices with. You know, the ones on the other side of the river where they ate one grain of rice a day and they practiced, you know, extreme ascetic practices. Yeah, and when the Buddha uh, saw that torturing the body does not purify the mind, he left them. Yeah. And they didn't say, oh, yes, you're right. You know, uh, we're going to leave with you. Let's go have a steak. Um, <laughs> yeah. They said, you're leaving. You know, you just, you're a phony baloney. You're no ascetic. You chickened out. You're weak. You know, you just gave it up. You couldn't stand the pain anymore. They insulted him. Yeah. But who were the first ones that he taught? Those five people. Yeah, he had wanted to first teach his first two teachers. Yeah, but they had already passed away by that time. Yeah. Okay, 109. Okay, here's, here's our mind speaking back, self-centered mind. But why should my enemy be venerated who has no intention for me to practice fortitude? Yeah. They don't want to help my practice of fortitude. Why should I venerate them for harming me? They're despicable. Okay, so, yeah, 
So, you know, our self-centered mind is, our angry mind is not going to take this lightly. It's not going to roll over and play dead. It's going to fight back. Okay. So then Shanti Deva says, okay, yeah, if uh, uh, you don't want to, you know, for you to respect somebody, they have to have the intention to benefit you. In that case, then why do you, uh, why are you benefiting the sacred dharma? Because it too has no intention to benefit you, but it is a fit cause for practice. Okay, so if you're going to ven- venerate the dharma because the dharma is a necessary circumstance for you to learn the teachings, to be able to practice, to be able to generate fortitude, to be able to attain awakening. Okay. If you venerate the the Dharma, which we do, then why shouldn't we benefit enemies? Because they're just as much a cause for us generating the qualities we need to become a Buddha. Okay, so if you don't want to venerate your enemy, then you shouldn't venerate the Dharma either. You don't appreciate the causes for your awakening, then don't appreciate all of them. So what are you going to do? I take refuge in the Buddha and the Sangha. But what makes the Buddha the Buddha? The Dharma does. What makes the Sangha the Sangha? The Dharma does. Oh, so whose foot am I shooting? My own Okay. This is a very, you know, Sandy Deva is sucking it to us. 110. Okay. Self centered mind's coming back again. But surely my enemies are not to be venerated, for they intend to cause me harm. So the previous thing that Shanti Deva said self centered thought is not accepting. You know, then Shantideva says, then how could fortitude be practiced if, like doctor, doctors, people always strove to do me good? Okay, so doctors are always trying to help cure us of our disease. If everyone in the world were kind to us and tried to help, help us be happy and free us from our ailments, yeah, then how would we ever practice fortitude? Who would we practice fortitude with? Can't practice it with the Buddha, can't practice it with the doctors, can't practice it with the people who are kind to us. Yeah, so no opportunity to generate fortitude, no Buddhahood. Okay, so if we are thankful to the people who help us, like doctors and other people who are kind to us, then we should also be thankful to the enemies because they help us by giving us the opportunity to practice patience, practice fortitude. Okay. So those people who made fun of me with so much delight and looked down upon me and picked on me and even made me cry. 
Yeah. They are to be venerated. So some years after I left Italy, and uh, I kind of recovered somewhat, uh, I was at a water tap in India at the, at the retreat center, and uh, Sam came to the water tap at the same time. And we both kind of looked at each other. We didn't say anything. Yeah. We might have been in, in asylum. I think we were both in silent retreat at that time. We didn't say anything. But there was this sense of, um, I, we're sorry all of that happened. Yeah. We're sorry all of that happened. It was just that sense between us. And then we went our own ways. Oh, yes, and Sam's friends. It has always been very interesting to me what happened to the whole cohort of them. They were all monks at that time, and all of them have disrobed since then. Okay, one twelve. Therefore, the Mighty One has said, Mighty One's the Buddha. Oh, one eleven. Thus, since patient acceptance is produced, independence on one with a very hateful mind, that person should be worthy of veneration, just like the sacred Dharma, because they are a cause of fortitude. So, Shantideva is bringing the conclusion of the, the past few verses of seeing the kindness of the enemy for giving us the opportunity to practice fortitude. He's bringing it, you know, uh, culminating it with this verse. Um, thus, since patient acceptance is produced, independence upon one with a very hateful mind. That person should be worthy of veneration, just like the sacred dharma, because they are a cause of patience, of fortitude. Then our mind says, wait a minute. Yeah, self-centeredness, not going to give up. Since patient acceptance is produced, I accept what that jerk did? He's trying to kill me. I just patiently accept it and say, yeah, walk all over me, kill me, it's all okay. That's what that first line says, you know, to our ordinary mind, patient acceptance. It means you just grit your teeth and endure it and be the victim and lose your self-respect in the process of it. Yeah. That's not what that line is saying. That's what it sounds like to our worldly mind. But what it's saying is, how does acceptance fit in here? 
this situation has happened or is happening in the present moment. But of course, some of the present moment has already happened and some of it hasn't happened. So whatever part has already happened, there's no way to change that. I might as well accept that, yes, that happened. But when I look at the past, I can accept that it happened and I can practice fortitude at the same time. So I don't accept that it happened and then rebel against it happening because rebel against it happening is not accepting that it happened. Are you getting what I mean? It's like something happened. I don't like it. Yeah, it's harmful. Does acceptance mean that I thought it was okay? No, that's not what acceptance means. Does acceptance means I'm not going to do anything about it? No, it doesn't mean that either. Acceptance simply means that happened. Yeah, that's the conventional reality of that event happened. I can't undo it. So I'm accepting what happened. But what I do in response, how I see the situation in the future, is totally open. That horrible thing happened, but the future is open and I can look at it as an event that is teaching me a lot. I can look at it as an event that's giving me the opportunity to practice fortitude. I can look at it as an event that is showing me how I look like when I act in a similar way so that I can purify all the times I have acted in that similar way. Okay? So acceptance doesn't mean what they did was okay. It just means that what happened, happened. Because as long as we say, that happened, no, it shouldn't have happened, I reject it, make it go away, it didn't happen, I hate it. That situation is controlling us. Yeah, it's controlling us. We have to be able to say, yeah, that happened. It was awful. What that person did was awful. Full stop on the past. Yeah, looking forward, I'm going to practice fortitude with that. I am never going to act like that towards another living being. Yeah. And I'm going to have compassion for this person and venerate them in the sense that they became the condition for me generating fortitude. Therefore, the Mighty One has said that the field of sentient beings is similar to a Buddha field, for many who have pleased them have thereby reached perfection. 
Yes, the Buddha field, the, the merit field that we visualize at the beginning. Yeah, that we take refuge in, that we make offerings to. Yeah, what did we do last night? Guru Puja, that whole long offering section. Yeah. And then the soak section, more offerings and the prostration session, section, paying respect. Okay. So merit field, you know, who do we create merit field? Those beings that we respect and venerate, okay? Because when we create merit in relationship to them, it enriches our mind, it fertilizes our mind, it makes us able to understand the teachings and practice them easier. So that's why we do that, yeah? And we appreciate the merit field in that way. But, so, why shouldn't we do that towards living beings who are also the cause of our, our awakening? It isn't just the Buddhas who are the cause of our awakening. Because if we look at all of the perfections, who do we create the perfections in relationship to? Yeah, generosity. Okay, yeah. We, we can create generosity with the merit field. But the merit field doesn't need our gifts. Yeah. We are happy giving a grapefruit and an apple and a cup of hot water and some bowls of cold water to the Buddha. Okay. Do you think the Buddha goes yippee? <laughs> yeah. This is wonderful. No. But, you know, we do this because we need to create the merit. Okay. Why? Because it shows our respect for the Buddha. When we show respect to the Buddha and the holy beings, it opens our own mind to generate the same qualities that they have. Okay. So making offerings is something that benefits us. Yeah, so it says, for many who have pleased them uh, have thereby reached perfection. But the same is true with sentient beings, because generosity isn't just practiced with the Buddhas. You know, generosity, it's easy to practice with the Buddhas. Yeah. I mean, the Buddha, you, you make the offerings in the morning, your mind, well, when you wake up, you're kind of... You know, pure mind and thinking of the Buddhas and it feel good. And the Buddha doesn't look at back and look down and say, you gave me one grapefruit and one apple and a cup of hot water and you think I'm going to give blessings on you so you become a Buddha? Yeah, who are you kidding, kid? You know, the Buddha doesn't say that, okay? But sometimes you may give something to a beggar and they look at it and like, I don't want this, you know? Give me good quality. I was just, you know, I, I was really thinking, because I, I just read yesterday that they're expecting a lot of um, Afghan uh, refugees in Seattle to settle in Seattle. So I thought... We have so much stuff in our storage room. 
you know, sheets and blankets and towels, all sorts of stuff. We should give this to some of the refugees who are coming. So I went online this morning. I start looking. And there's uh, World Relief, okay? You know, big organization. And they're, they're making kits and everything for the refugees. But new items only. Yeah. But we want to, we want to give things that are in very good condition that we would use ourselves if we needed them, but they are in excess. We don't need them. We want to share them. But you don't want our offering, huh? Yeah. So, you know, a, a beggar says, no, this isn't good enough quality for me. Yeah, this is the organization, you know, it's not, I'm sure the, the refugees would take things in a finger snap. Okay. But, you know, the organization is trying to do the best by the refugees, but, you know, they're, they're missing out on things that, that could benefit them. Anyway, I won't get into all of that. It's their, their choice. Okay. But the idea is, um, you know, to practice generosity, we need people to give things to. And those people may not always be kind to us in return. Yeah. Oh, here's another story that just popped into my mind. Okay, so I went to my first... I, I had gone to a couple of Buddhist talks being given in Los Angeles. And uh, and then they, were, they had a flyer, you know, uh, at the talks and at this bookstore I went to. Uh, that talked about a retreat, you know, in Lake Arrowhead with two Tibetan lamas. Yeah, happened to be Lama Yeshe and Sopa Rinpoche. So I went to this retreat. I didn't know anything. I was inspired by the Dharma and, you know, by the whole thought of cherishing others. Okay, so I want to be a Bodhisattva. Came back from that retreat. And I, there was a, a donut store around the corner from where I lived, yeah? So I went to get some donuts one evening, yeah? And I, as I came back out, yeah, in the parking lot, there was a beggar sitting in the parking lot. So Bodhisattva me, inspired by the first Dharma, you know, course I went to. I gave him one of these precious donuts. You know, I didn't have a lot of money, and anyway, I'm cheap. So <laughs> I thought, you know, I won't keep all the donuts for myself. I'll give one to this man sitting in the bucket. So I gave him the donut, you know, with both hands respectfully, just the way you're supposed to do it. And he took it, and he looked at it. And he crumbled it. <laughs> and all the crumbs went on, on the, in the parking lot on the ground. That wasn't what you were supposed to do. I was supposed to feel good about myself. Proud of myself for giving you a donut. And you denied that of me. Uh-huh. So they say the Buddha appears in many different forms to teach you. I have a sneaking suspicion 
that beggar was a Buddha because it really taught me something very soon. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, we need sentient beings to practice generosity. We need sentient beings to practice ethical conduct. Yeah? Killing, stealing, unwise sexual behavior, all these kinds of things. Who are we going to practice it with? Yeah, we need sentient beings. Fortitude. Who do we practice it with? Sentient beings. Joyous effort. Well, yeah, we need to practice that in terms of of, uh, our meditation, but we need to practice it in terms of sentient beings too. Yeah. Concentration. Oh, concentration doesn't depend on sentient beings. Depends on my effort. Why is that bird chirping? It is disturbing my concentration. Doesn't it know it should not chirp near a meditator's window? Yeah. And my neighbor, they're running their lawnmower, and their cow is mooing, but their cow doesn't just moo. Yeah, he shakes the earth when he moves, doesn't he? Yeah. Doesn't that cow know I am trying to meditate? I'm going to practice concentration. I am mindful of the Buddha. I am mindful of the Buddha. Okay, so, you know, to practice concentration, we also need to practice fortitude. And we need that cow. Yeah? And uh, that cow, fortunately, you know, uh, they, they actually have a mom and dad cow, and they had a baby. Yeah, so maybe baby is going to grow up to be like dad. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Right now, I think they're in the barn. But, uh, yeah, we need sending beings for everything. Yeah, when we're meditating on emptiness, what, you think you only meditate on the emptiness of the Buddha? Yeah, I sit down to meditate. I don't see the Buddha. The Buddha's <laughs> empty. <laughs> yeah, no. We need to see sentient beings as empty, too. Yeah, that third kind of compassion that Chantakirti talked about. That's mentioned in the quotation in the down below that we have. Okay, so we always need sentient beings. So for many who have pleased them, have thereby reached perfection. So we need sentient beings to do it. Okay, we'll stop here for today. If you have one or two questions? Yeah. Okay, so the questions always start with yes, but. No, it's not going to start with yes, but. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs>
How do you turn a negative act against you into purification? Do you have to like specifically say, okay, this is going to be purification for times I've done this in the past and make a resolve and do a remedial action? Yeah. Um, Well, they say just when something negative happens to us to say to ourselves, one way is to say to ourselves, this is that karma ripening. So instead of ripening in a hell realm, it's ripening now. And the pain it's causing me is nothing compared to the hell realm. So I am purifying that karma by it ripening now. Okay. But I think it's good to not only do that, or even if this other way, uh, you know, it helps you more to say, um, I, I have acted like that in the past because I've been everything and done everything in samsara. Yeah. So I've done that kind of action. Even I can't remember it. It might have happened 50 million and five eons ago, but, and I can't remember it, but, you know, as long as I have anger in my mind, it can happen. <laughs> yeah. So I don't want to ever act like that again and harm sentient beings like that again. I, I am completely determined not to do that again. And then do the purification. Yeah. So you can do, you know, we always talk about purification with Vajrasattva and 35 Buddhas, but any practice you're doing, you can do purification with. Yeah. I mean, you can do it with Chenrezig, Medicine Buddha, Tara, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And, and, but you think the same way in all of them with the light coming and, and, uh, dispelling, yeah, the negativity. So you go through the four opponent powers that way. Yeah. And that builds a certain, for me, when I do that, it like, um, it builds more strength in the mind to, I will, I really do not want to ever do that again to anybody. Yeah. And when you can really say that very strongly, it, it, it gives you a, a certain sense of, um, of stability or of confidence. Yeah. Just a comment, Venerable, the, um, the, the charge of spiritual bypassing has been coming up in my mind in the practice, actually. And I was going to ask you if yeah. you would do maybe a BBC about it, but you just taught about it. You know, if, if we understand <laughs> what you just taught is dealing with the past and dealing with other issues, yeah. there's no way that there's this no quote way. spiritual bypassing no is way. what's happening here. No way. Yeah. So I, anyway, I just wanted to bring that up because it, yeah. it comes sometimes. Yeah. Because we don't understand. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, you look at, there's so many ways, different ways of misunderstanding what, what Shanti Dev is saying. That's why we need teachings on something. Because if we just read it, either we say this is foolish, or you say, oh, it's spiritual bypassing, you're being a goody-goody. And both perspective, both perspectives means that you haven't Receive teachings on it so that you understand what he's saying properly. Yeah. Yeah. Spiritual bypassing is the latest new thing to talk about. You know, it's very interesting in Buddhist magazines. It's like, you know, every year there's some newest thing that we have to talk about. Yeah. And 
this year. Yeah, it's that. I remember the first thing was therapy, you know. Everybody needs therapy. Yeah, Buddhism's good. Let's go to the therapist. Yeah, that was the first. And then we got into all sorts of, oh, now, then mindfulness was the big, no, mindfulness came later, but we had all sorts of things in between. Yeah, spiritual bypassing, which is, nobody wants to spiritual bypass. That's certainly not helpful. Yeah, but that is precisely why we need teachers and to live in a community. Because if you have a teacher who calls you on things and you have Dharma friends and you live in a community with people who will practice, push your buttons, then you're not going to spiritual bypass. Yeah. Yeah. If somebody's pushing your buttons, it's very difficult to spiritual bypass, isn't it? Yeah. It's like, that spatula goes here. Don't you know that? Yeah. You can't spiritual bypass. Yeah. It's easy to spiritual bypass when you're alone. Because you set up your own little everything the way you want it, and it's nice and neat, and you have everything that you want, and you practice, and there's no cows, and there's no birds, and there's no neighbors, you know, there's nobody who's bugging you, and you're in bliss. That's like the story of the meditator who, um, yeah, who's meditating in the mountains for years and years and years and years, and, uh, you know, thought he had perfected fortitude and came down to town one day and somebody called him a name and he got furious. Yeah, that's spiritual bypassing. Yeah. So, yeah, when you're living alone in the mountains, yeah, it, it's, yeah, it's more, it's easier. Yeah. But Milarepa even, he couldn't, uh, uh, he, he couldn't spiritual bypass even if he wanted to. Uh, he was, um, because one day, you know, he was meditating and all these spirits came to disturb him. You know, forget the cows and the, and the birds. They, all these spirits, ugly spirits came and they're disturbing his concentration. And, you know, he, he of course, wants to be like this and the spirits are coming and he says, why did you guys come here? And they said, why did you invite us? <laughs> okay. So, of course, he couldn't spiritual bypass. He was the one who invited all the spirits to come. Yeah, one spirit was attachment. One spirit was, you know, anger. One spirit was his mother. One spirit was, you know whoever it was from the past or whatever feeling it was in the past. Okay, let's dedicate.